0: Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. I'm going to read uh, verses 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive if then you received it? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as least of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish, that I should come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would um, you'd give us what we need. I pray that you would feed us from your word this morning that we might uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to understand these things, give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we come to this next section of 1 Corinthians in our uh, work through this book, we really come to this morning a a transition. Paul, here at the end of chapter 4, closes this part of his correction And as we will see in due time when we get to chapter 5, he'll start correcting some of the specific areas that the church at Corinth needs to address. So by the time we finish today, we will have seen the Apostle Paul spend four chapters addressing the root sins that threaten to overtake the hearts of the Christians here. And then starting in chapter 5, we're going to see the outflowing of the sins of their hearts. The symptoms working out what is is really going on inside of them. But here in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to be dealing with the problem of essentially a complacent church. That is a church that is filled with complacent Christians. That's also the problem that we read about in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. A church that was saying, we are rich, we are filled We have everything, but a church of which the Lord says, you don't know what you're like, you're deceiving yourselves. Turn over there for a moment, Revelation chapter 3. I want to read just verses 14 to 22. This is what Christ says to the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3, 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the ancient problem of spiritual lukewarmness, of being neither cold nor hot. We are in a very real danger of these verses, frankly, being about us. One pastor, speaking of this, these passages, recently said this. He said, I think the problem that most discourages people from turning to the gospel of Christ today is that very problem of half-warm Christians. They're not alive, alert, on fire for God or ready to serve Him, but they're not turned off either. They're just in between in a kind of nauseating experience of spiritual life. They're quick to put on Christian t-shirts, Quick to post Christian memes and not show up for worship. This is not a condemnation of people who aren't here today, by the way. They're quick to do those things, outward appearances, and not serve one another in brotherly love. And so this section of Scripture that we have come to, this Morning, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is the end of a larger section in which Paul has been dealing with this selfish pride and the, and the consequences in our lives. The root of the problem here in Corinth was their, their love of human wisdom, their hunger for the approval of the world. And the pride that they took in their own accomplishments and, the, and, the, and the, the, what they felt merited the approval of everyone around them. This really is a problem in our own day as well. But just to summarize, and I know that we've hit these things for several chapters as Paul keeps going over this, but I think this is important. There are four things that we've already seen the Apostle Paul that he, that he saw in Corinth that told the story for him. So, first, he had seen divisions among them. Here was a congregation that was split up into little cliques and factions gathering around certain teachers. Then, and we really will see this played out in the the coming chapters, they were telling everyone how great a church they were, how tremendous were their meetings, and and they were taking credit for it themselves as though it were something that they had sought out and planned and, and, and worked out. There is, uh, if I could get just a little bit, maybe off topic for a moment, there's nothing more sort of nauseating in this sense of wanting to spit this out to me as a pastor than to look at what some of the, some of the church growth kind of pastors post on the internet on Sunday afternoons. Probably most of you don't see these things, but I do. They'll say things like, man, worship was just off the hook Today. They'll boast about how awesome their church services were, week in and week out. Same pastors saying the same things every Sunday afternoon. But you, don't want to know, you want to know what's really awesome? The ordinary means of grace. The fact that we can gather together as God's people, week in and week out, and sing praises to his name, and hear his word. That we can gather together and eat and drink and so proclaim his death until he returns. That's what's awesome. The fact that Christ has called us to assemble in his name each Lord's day to taste and see that the Lord is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. Well, let's get back to this because there was this jealous strife and infighting in the congregation. And we have to assume in the leadership of the church as well. Not just in the people, but also in the leadership. And then finally, there was a, there was a complacent spirit. There was a complacency and a, and a smug satisfaction with the way that they were. And we can really see this most clearly when Paul gets sarcastic with them. Uh, here in these verses as he rebukes them. But let's just pump the brakes for a moment here and consider these things. Let me ask you this question. What are the marks of Christian maturity? What are the the characteristics of a mature Christian? Probably we would agree that, that for the most part, although not always, a mature Christian is someone who has seen some mileage Someone who's been around for a while. They have some age and experience. Probably we could name some younger believers who display a maturity beyond their years, and we praise God for them. But generally speaking, Christian maturity develops with time and over age. Now that, it's arbitrary. The numbers are arbitrary. Sometimes they develop with those who have grown up in a Christian home. Sometimes it develops quickly into adulthood. But beyond sort of the basics, we know that there are many places in Scripture that point us in the right direction in these areas when considering mature Christian. So, for example, a mature Christian ought to display the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We saw as we studied Paul's epistle to Titus that that a mature church was one that must be led by godly leadership by men who are above reproach and and able to instruct and rebuke according to the sound teaching of the Scriptures. And from there, the older men of those mature churches are to be sober-minded, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Likewise, the the older women of those mature churches are to be reverent in their behavior and and teachers of goodness, training the younger women in matters of godliness and love. That's that's really Titus chapter 2. Those mature churches, Paul even includes there in that letter to Titus, are churches wherein the younger men are urged toward self-control, and even the slaves in their society are to do all that they can, he says, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, mature churches are filled with Christians who are spurring one another toward reflecting the gospel. If we might elevate one characteristic of maturity over others, we might think of love. Especially since, as Paul will write here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the greatest of these is love. Love for one another. We love because he first loved us, John will tell us. But love can be very vague, especially in our society. We must also be attached to truth. Mature Christians must be people of the truth. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he talks about the nature and purpose of the Bible in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, when he writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And while the context of that passage applies directly to the pastor, the principle is true for all mature Christians. See, that word complete, there in 2 Timothy 3.17, it's related to the word maturity. The scriptures are given to us as the very breath of God, Paul says. And whereas God breathed life into Adam, the the breath of life, in the Scriptures, He breathes into us the breath of new life, of eternal life. And the Scriptures are given not simply to make us newborns, but to make us complete and equipped for every good work. They are given to educate us to maturity. Not simply for head knowledge, I know that I reference this passage often, but probably one of the most important and clear passages of Scripture pertaining to this issue of Christian maturity in the church is Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 to 16 which says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, itself up in love. Mature Christians are mature when they are people of the capital T, truth and love. But the Corinthians, the Corinthians had formed factions and divisions around the very, around the very gifts, or around, the, around the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherd, teachers that were given to them by Jesus Christ for their good and his glory. So Paul now clarifies, beginning in verse 6 here, all that he has been driving at so far in this letter. And he begins by rebuking the church's arrogance. He rebukes the church's arrogance. Look again at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul wants to be clear for the church, he's not criticizing Apollos. In fact, in several places throughout the New Testament, Apollos is commended as a, as a godly and mature Christian. Rather, what Paul is doing is using himself and Apollos as examples in order to admonish the Corinthians as a congregation. And ultimately, his rebuke is concerned with their favoritism. In other words, he's saying here that, that just as it would be wrong to exalt Apollos over Paul or Paul over Apollos, it would also be wrong to form factions around any God-ordained shepherd or, or teacher. But now he says outright what he's been working toward all along. And that is that the issue is not so much that they're forming factions, that's an issue, but the issue really is, the issue under that is that they are puffed up, that they are arrogant, they're, they're prideful. See, we need to hear this carefully. I have my favorite Bible teachers too, right? We all sort of do, probably. In this day and age of YouTube and podcasting especially, but even with radio stations and books and websites and articles, it's easy... And frankly, it's it's not wrong necessarily to pick a favorite teacher and follow their ministry. I have enormous respect for the teaching of, for example, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries. Some, although not all, of Doug Wilson's work. Carl Truman, Sam Renahan, the stuff being produced through Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. There are all kinds of commendable writers and teachers out there that you would benefit from. From listening to. The issue is not Apollos or Paul. It's not even really that they prefer one over another. That's an issue. But the issue really is that they're puffed up with pride in themselves over these things. The issue is that they don't like that they, don't like that they are no different from any other Christian. Everything that they have, everything that they know is from God, including the gospel. And it's been taught to them by Paul and Apollos and servants and others. Servants who are, he says, simply under-rowers for the sake of the church and the glory of the name of Christ. They become puffed up that they have this special knowledge. Knowledge that's all right here in the Scriptures. And and I can't tell you um, how much I appreciate this church. I'm nobody special, you know that. I don't have any great degrees after my name. Um, I'm not going to be a big conference speaker. I can't ever see myself writing a book. Um, My father was a mechanic. My grandfather was a mechanic. My great-grandfather was a, a mailman on the railroad. In worldly terms, or in churchy terms, I don't have anything special to offer but I have the good news. And God has given me a a burden, to use the language of the minor prophets, of telling it to you. That's all I've got. This isn't about me. This is about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is about the sufficiency of Scripture. God has revealed to us in his word everything that we need for life and godliness everything that we need to know and trust in Christ and live a mature Christian life. Yet they're puffed up. They're boasting as if they, as if their individual factions were something special. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? These, he asks them really three questions here, and he, and he kind of asks it to them in a rapid-fire way, and they're rhetorical questions. And, and the first one, what he is saying there is that they have no right to make such a judgment of themselves. To do so is simple arrogance. Then he reminds them that, that everything that they have, even their very salvation, is a gift from God. So ought we then boast? And then Paul hits them between the eyes, with some masterful, apostolic, sanctified sarcasm. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul had said, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd and teachers, to equip the saints. But you, he says, have already achieved glory. You're already reigning with Christ. Oh, that we could be up there with you too. But instead of being up there reigning with Christ, with these high and mighty Corinthians, he explains that the Lord has seen fit to humble them, to humble the apostles. So beginning in verse 9 through verse 13, it's all about the humility or the humbling of the apostles. We'll pick it up in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Remember, Paul is, Paul is rebuking the church for thinking too highly of themselves and for dividing into factions around their favorite ministers. And in contrast to their arrogant boasting, he points out the plight of the apostles. But as he lays out this contrast, don't miss the point. See, it's not just that the apostles have one lifestyle and the Corinthians another. Paul is explaining that what the apostles' lives looked like is the work of God. That's how verse 9 starts when he says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles. God has exhibited us apostles, he says. God has put the apostles on display. And remember, most of the apostles, at least the original 12 or 11 once um, Judas is gone, but most of the original apostles fled when Jesus faced his suffering. They fled when Jesus was struck, as he says, when he was taken into custody and arrested and crucified. But now these men will not flee. They will not flee their own suffering. Peter and John specifically had said in Acts that we must obey God rather than men, and they were beaten for it. In fact, Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42 tells us, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God has put the apostles on display as men doomed to die. This was part of his promise. Specifically to Paul, for example, in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name also to the rest of the Apostles More generally, in John 15, verse 18, he says to them, "'If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. "'If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. "'But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, "'therefore the world hates you. "'Remember the word that I said to you. "'A servant is not greater than his master. "'If they persecuted me, they also persecute you. "'If they kept my word, they will also keep yours.' but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And in these verses here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us how these promises are fulfilled. And really, there are four fulfillments here. First, he says that they have been made spectacles, as verse 9 says. And this word, or really this this phrase, have been made spectacles, is where we get our English word for theater. That's the idea behind this. They've been put on display. So consider this. These are the apostles. They have been sent to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they are to do so not just in word, but really with their whole lives. They are living pictures of the one that they follow. They're on display to the world as as captives in a victory parade, condemned to die, he says, like criminals in the arena, while both angels and humans in the crowd just stare at them. They are like the least of these the apostles. And I would bring to your attention, kind of by way of contrast, to the sons of thunder. Do you remember the sons of thunder? Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 40, puts it like this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. They wanted to be firsts. And yet, now God has made them last, at least in the eyes of the world. In fact, by the time that that Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, James, one of the sons of thunder, John's brother, has already been put to death. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5 says this, But uh, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And this pleased the Jews, it says. Those who had demanded Christ's crucifixion were still bloodthirsty. These apostles were a spectacle indeed. But secondly, rather than being seen as martyrs, which if we're honest, kind of brings an air of respectability, doesn't it? To be seen as a martyr is to be seen with respect. They gave up their lives for what they believed in, but they weren't looked at as martyrs, even to the world. Instead, they're they're looked at as being weak, disreputable fools. Do you see that in verse 10? They're seen as weak, disreputable fools. Now, there is more sarcasm here in these verses. Um, It seems a little bit more serious or maybe a little bit more grave than he was in verse 8. And he's really poking his finger at the Corinthians' view of themselves as wise and strong and honored. And what Paul is doing here is he's pointing out that the, the lives of the apostles, not just their message, seems as foolish as the gospel itself. But to paraphrase chapter 1, God chose those who are foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose those who are weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose those who are low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The apostles' status in the world was as low as can be. But if we are viewed by the world as wise and strong and honored, what does that say about us? If we are viewed as wise and strong and honored by a world that is rapidly running as fast as it can from God, from His holiness, what does that say about us? What does it say about the church? What we need to understand is that the suffering that they faced, it wasn't merely symbolic. Um, The apostles faced a real, tangible suffering, as you can see there in verses 11 and 12. Let me read these again. Verse 11, to the present hour, right up to the very day, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Suffering is not something the apostles would grow out of as they grew more spiritual. In fact, Paul even says right there, to the present hour, right up to this very day, right up to today. And if you look carefully at this list of sufferings, compare it maybe to Paul's life in the second half of Acts, or the second two-thirds of the book of Acts, you're going to see that Paul, Paul's talking about his own life experiences. He, he's gone hungry and homeless, He's had to work to support his own ministry, and and what that means is that the elites of both the the Jewish and the Greek society would look down on him. That's what he means there. And although the apostles are reviled and persecuted and slandered, how do they respond? They respond as Christ did, with blessing, with endurance, with entreating, which is is kind of a a hard word to translate but it probably means they put forward a friendship or kindness. This is how all Christians should respond to mistreatment. There's a command in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 that says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And Paul concludes this list with two words that mean more or less the same thing. Scum and refuse. They are like those who are thrown out with the trash, he says. Nothing is more humbling than this. But this is how Christ himself was treated. I would encourage you to go read Isaiah 52 and 53. To see how Christ was treated. Read any of the four Gospels, those last few chapters, to see how Christ was treated. Paul doesn't simply rebuke them and get sarcastic toward them. He also appeals to them as a father. This is a fatherly appeal, these last verses. Pick it up in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with... A rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Paul loves this church like his own children. And he expects that they will listen to him because of their love and respect for him and for each other in Christ. He wants them to understand the the consequences of their immaturity. He has a a special place in their heart and they have a special place in his heart because he's, he's led so many of them to Christ. And because of this relationship, he raises one imperative, one command, be imitators of me, he says. He urges them to follow his teaching and his practice. He wants their lives to reflect the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. But that means that they must must give up their boasting, their arrogance, their elite attitudes, and they must live a life that reflects the crucified Christ. And like Christ, he has also not left them alone. He sent another of his beloved children in the Lord, Timothy, whose job it was to remind them of of the life that Paul lives, which was a life... Like Christ. Timothy is to shepherd and teach them the things that Paul teaches in all the churches, he says. Essentially, the things that we now have in his epistles, in the letters, in the New Testament, in the Scriptures. Namely, what Christ has done and how we should then live. It's right there in verse 17. You can see two adjectives that describe what we should look like. Beloved and faithful. Faithful. This should describe all of us. If you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, that he is the son of the living God, then you are beloved. That's what that means. If you are his, then you are beloved. You are beloved by Christ, and because you are his, you are called to be faithful as he is faithful. This is the power of the kingdom of God here. Even though some are arrogant and believe that they have the power to save themselves, the power of the kingdom of God exists not in lofty speech or in worldly wisdom, but in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so once again, on this Lord's Day, we come to the table with thankful hearts, thankful that we are beloved by God, and, 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 and that we are His because of His faithfulness toward us. That God has shown His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are called to be, to imitate Paul. We are to look to Timothy, his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Remind him of the Scriptures. Remind them of what What Christian life is supposed to look like, he says. Teach them God's word. Show them Christ. Remember that he has shown his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is so much more that could be said here even in this last few verses. I think it ties together with the next chapter and so we'll pick it up here um, next time. But for now, let's cling to this promise and proclaim his death while we await his return. Cling to the promise that he has called us, the truth that he has called us beloved. The truth that he is faithful. That he is faithful and just. Let's pray together. Father, as we As we consider these words, as we consider Paul's rebuking of the Corinthians, I pray that where we need to be rebuked, we would be. Where we need to repent of our sin, we would. Father, where we have relied on our own worldly wisdom or um, our own boasting. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts and make us like Christ. Lord, we know that when Paul says, imitate me, he's not just saying, act like me, I'm a man. In other places, he will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, Lord, make us truly Christians, truly little Christ's, those who are like Christ. That we might remember that we are beloved because Christ is faithful. We are called to be faithful too. And so as we come to the table, Lord, to proclaim Christ's death, we do so with thankful hearts this morning, Lord. Thankful for the work that you have done and confident that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We long for the day when we can be home with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.